Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Good morning. As as John mentioned, uh, my name is Ken Cantrell. Um, I'm one of the elders here, although I'm not actively serving on the elder body, so I'm not not out on the retreat with them this week. If... um, if you are not a regular attender for Oak City, I'm not the, the regular preacher, and you should come back next week to hear Jeff. So uh, if you would, if we would stand for the reading of God's Word, we're going to start with the text that we'll be working from today. Slaves, be subject to your masters with all reverence, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are perverse. For this finds God's favor, if... Because of conscience towards God, someone endures hardships in suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if you sin and are mistreated and endure it? But if you do good and suffer and so endure, this finds favor with God. For to this you were called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was maligned, he did not answer back. When he suffered, he threatened no retaliation, but committed himself justly to God, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we may cease from sinning and live for righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. For you were going astray like sheep, but now you've turned back to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You can be seated. So you may not find this uh, topic particularly difficult. Uh, I did. I, I struggled a lot as I went through this text and trying to understand what it meant and how it applies. So um, part of what I want to do as we start is I want to give you some of the major points I'm going to hit as we walk through so that hopefully you can kind of hear them and listen for them as we go. I'm not going to go into any real detail on them right now, but you should hear them, like I said, as we go through. First, there is no place for racism in Christianity. Secondly, we are called to a radical countercultural response to those that treat us wrongly. Number three, Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf is greater than we understand, and it is our example to follow. Number four, only Jesus' followers have the power to follow that example. And number five, our response to suffering helps Jesus to be known. And there is a number six, and I'll talk just a tiny bit on this one. There are some really, really hard topics in the Bible. I I think some of the stuff in this one for me was one of those. And we, we need a grounded set of believers around us to help us navigate that and figure out how to apply Jesus' teaching to our life. For those of you that are online, I am thrilled that you're here. But if telechurch is your whole experience of church, or for that matter, if you're only here on Sunday mornings, you're missing out on part of what you need. We need to have a set of folks that we can work through these tough issues with together. So with that, let's go back to the text. Actually, before we go too deep into the text, I want to quickly mention that there are other passages in the New Testament that look a lot 
like this. Particularly Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 8, and Colossians 3, 22 to 25. And I, I just point that out to say, Peter's not off in some crazy world when he gives us this passage. What he's teaching here is consistent with the rest of the Bible. And it's important enough to talk about in three distinct places. Again, like I said, I, I mentioned that because I think it's hard stuff, and sometimes what we want to do with hard stuff is to ignore it and to brush it off and say, well, that was a different time, that was a different context, it doesn't really matter. Um, but I think we're forced to have to deal with what our God and Savior is trying to tell us. A few years ago, I preached a sermon on the idea that God is good and God is sovereign. And I, I anchored that kind of with the fact that my mom had died of cancer. So um, if anybody cares, I can probably find a link to that where you can go back and listen to it. But I think as we go through today's passage, that's another thing to keep in mind. This idea that God is both good and sovereign. Our God is good. He's not sometimes good, and he's not always somewhat good. He is at all times all good, and he's sovereign. He's not just sitting up there somewhere watching down on us. Everything is under his control, and that's, that's easy for me to say. It's hard sometimes to reconcile with a mom who dies early of cancer or a boss who's terrible or all the evil that we see all around us. And I, personally, I'm convinced we're never really going to get it until we see Jesus face to face. But we have to start there. I mean, it's a whole other sermon to like lay that whole foundation. But I'm going to ask you to start there and remember that God is good and God is sovereign. So let's go back to our passage and start with that first word, slaves. So most of the commentaries that I read just kind of breezed over that word. But I don't think you can do that. I think in today's society, there's enough stress there that we have to pause here for just a little bit. So what did slavery look like in the time of Jesus? Now that, that's actually a really complex question. And um, I'm not 100% sure that I have the full and right picture here. Because um, there's a lot of contradictions in the literature that I found. But I did spend, um, <laughs> spend a while actually reading Aristotle. Um, I read um, not all of it because it's really, really long, but I read the Justinian Law Code for a while. I read a bunch of commentaries. So I feel pretty solid in what I'm going to share with you. In the history of our country, slavery has been very, very tightly tied to race. But that wasn't the case in ancient Rome. I read a number of estimates that said that up to 30% of the Roman Empire were slaves. And it seems that most of those people were actually defeated prisoners of war. So there were slave traders that followed behind the army, and every time the mighty Roman army would, def would defeat somebody, they would take the defeated people, put them into slavery, and ship them back to the rest of the Roman Empire. And so there were all sorts of people that were slaves. Also, it was common for people to abandon their children. So when the kids were rescued, they were sold into slavery. Some people purposely sold their children into slavery because they were in debt and they needed the money. Um, other people sold themselves into slavery in order to pay off debt. 
So that's one thing that's different about how it was here, because there actually were jobs as a slave in the Roman Empire where you could make a decent living. So the idea was, if you were really bad in debt, sell yourself into slavery, make a decent wage, pay off the debt, and then you could actually buy your freedom. So make enough money to buy your freedom, and then you would go back to the position of what was called a freedman. One reason people would do that is because if you couldn't pay your debt, you could be forcibly sold into slavery, and then you didn't know necessarily where you were going to end up. And then finally, children of slaves were automatically born as slaves. The life of a slave varied massively. So there were public slaves that were owned by the government. They tended to have a better life. Uh, then there were private slaves who were owned by individuals, and they, they didn't have quite as good a life just in general. But slaves did everything, um, from governmental tasks and paperwork and paper pushing to really hard labor, um, to work in the mines, but like all the way up to being family tutors and to being family doctors. So some slaves were treated really well, some were treated horribly. In this passage that we're reading, Peter's using a word for slave that's only used three other times in the New Testament. And usually this word means household slave or domestic slave, so some of your translations, if you read it, it'll actually translate it as servant instead. So it's likely, but it's not for sure, that Peter's talking to a higher socioeconomic class of slave, um, including the possibility of just actual employees, uh, freed people, or slaves that had voluntarily put themselves into, into service and who may be free at some point. But he's also focusing his attention on the slaves. There's no mention of the slave owners here. We don't know why, but the assumption is that in this area of the country, for some reason, um, the slave owners weren't really turning to Christianity, but the slaves themselves were, so that was the population. And notice also that there was an assumption when we read that, that slaves are going to be treated poorly. Now, why would that be? So Aristotle, so Aristotle was not a Jew. Aristotle was not a Christian. Um, maybe 300 to 350 years before the time of Jesus, he had taught that some people are simply meant to be slaves. He had a phrase for it. He called them natural slaves. He said you could even look at some people at birth and say that person is meant to be a slave. His idea was that there's just a different class of people. Some are meant to be in charge and some are meant to be ruled. And that idea was a fundamental part of Roman culture. And that leads kind of this idea that slaves are property. They're not people, they're property. Slaves had no legal rights. Their marriages weren't legal. I already mentioned their kids were the slave owner's property. And because they're property, you didn't necessarily have to treat them morally. So, for example, if a slave owner wanted sex, his slaves, whether male or female or child, were his to do with as they pleased. So, Although the life of a slave could be really good in some parts of the Roman Empire or in some families, don't let anybody tell you that the life of a slave in ancient Rome was all rosy. So it makes sense why Peter would just assume that they're going to be treated poorly. Now contrast that with the biblical view of man. It, it frustrates people, at least it frustrates me, I assume it frustrates others, that there's no teaching in the New Testament that explicitly condemns slavery. There's, there's not. But there's also no teaching that endorses slavery. 
And that's really important because the teachings that are there stand firmly and obviously against the principles of slavery. Just start at the beginning. Start at Genesis. From the very beginning, God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God established that we, mankind, are all one. Black or white, young or old, male or female, we are one. We are the only thing out of all of God's creation made in his image. Every person here, every person listening has untold, undescribable intrinsic value simply because we are made in the image of our creator, the image of the creator of everything. So then jump to the New Testament. In Romans, it says, for the death he, this is Jesus, for the death that Jesus died, he died to sin once for all. Not once for an elite class, but not for a non-elite class. Not once for some culture or some race. He died once for all. In Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. Why? Because you, we, are all one in Christ Jesus. In 1 Corinthians, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks or slave or free, we were made to drink of one spirit. Here, in church, in our body, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and Christ is in all. It's a good question why the Bible never speaks more directly against slavery. Even with the idea that the Bible is inspired, and it is, and it's God-breathed, it is, um, maybe, maybe the authors believed, so just some ideas of why it may not speak to it that way, um, maybe the authors just believed that Jesus was coming back very soon. And if you read the New Testament, it's, it's pretty clear that a lot of the, the authors, especially at the beginning of the letters, had this idea that Jesus was coming back, like, soon. And so it was far more important to talk about how to change people's hearts than to try to change society, especially if Jesus was going to come back and just reset society. It may have been that they understood the massive disruption to society that would have happened because if they just killed slavery immediately, because, just to be frank, the Roman Empire depended on slavery. It may have been that they saw the failed slave rebellions that had happened, even recently for them, and they realized how much the authorities would have stomped on the faith and how much it would have muddled this idea of following Christ with some sort of social rebellion. We, we don't know. But what we do know with certainty is that the teachings of Christ, the teachings of the Bible, lay the foundation for the end of slavery in the Western world, right? in the world, right? There is no place for racism in a Christian's life, period. And here's something I had never considered before I read these texts. At the time, they were probably causing a heck of a lot of stress. So slaves were hearing in church, you are made in the image of God. You are equal. You have value. And then they had to leave church and go back to a place where they're told, you're property. Man, that had to have been, like, the mental, that had to have been horrible. But even more, 
it's possible, it's even likely, that there were people in church, slaves in church, who were the spiritual overseers of slave owners. Because in the church, it's all equal, right? So if you are a spiritually mature person, you happen to be a slave, a slave owner comes in, and they are spiritually immature, you might be their spiritual overseer in the church. Man, that had to have caused some serious friction. So, that's our context in which Peter says, slaves, be subject to your masters with all reverence, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are perverse. So, a few questions. Why do we care that this is there at all? Why would Peter say this? And how can anybody obey this? So why do we care? I, I say that because thankfully the concept of slavery as it was known in Jesus' time or early in our own country's time, it, it's no longer part of our daily lives. Like the implications of it are, right? But no one here is a literal slave to somebody else. None of you are considered mere property in today's society. But all of us have a one-and-one relationship with somebody else. All of us, I think, are subject to somebody else's authority in our life. So the principles of this passage apply to all of us. Now, I want to be clear, right? This passage is not written explicitly about a one-on-one relationship. It's not written explicitly about employees and employers. If it was, it would say, hey, employees, be subject to your employers. And that's not what it says. But the principles of this passage apply in both of those situations. So that's kind of how we're going to look at it today. We're going to look at it as if it was reading church, and that's all of us as individuals, followers of Christ, be subject to your employers, and, because we're not all employed, to all of those who have authority over you, with all reverence, and that reverence there is reverence to God, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are perverse. So that's why it applies. Why do you care? Because those principles apply to you and I right now, today. So the next question, why would Peter say this other than inspiration? Well, he tells us in the very next bit. He says, for this finds God's favor. If because of conscience towards God, someone endures hardships and suffering unjustly. So (laughs) I tried over and over. How do you read that? Like, where do you put the pause? Where do you put the emphasis so it makes sense? That's just a horrible sentence. Um, So let me rephrase it for you and see if if this helps. We receive God's favor. And now let me back up. This is not about how does one become made right with God. This is not a working out your salvation sort of, or, or coming to Jesus justification thing. This is saying we, followers of Jesus, who are already his, we receive God's favor when we are aware of him, We have him in mind, we know who he is, we know what he's done for us, and we're acting in a way that is consistent with that, and then we get mistreated, we suffer, and we experience hardship despite that, or or even more because of it. Or to say again, if you are a follower of Jesus, and you are trying to follow him, and you are being mistreated in this employee-employer relationship or so forth, and you're experiencing hardship, you 
will receive God's favor. It's a really weird passage in some ways. Now he goes on to say, what credit is it to you if you sin and are mistreated and endure it? Now that makes sense, right? If you do wrong, you should suffer for it. That's the point of doing wrong, right? So that makes sense. But if you do good and suffer and so endure it, this finds favor with God. So why does Peter say, be subject to others? Because in God's goodness, in God's sovereignty, this is where he has placed us. And when we honor that, and we do right, and we do good in that situation, we will receive God's favor. Okay, if you're like me, you're thinking, what is God's favor? And (laughs) I don't know. Um, I read commentary after commentary. There's some disagreement on what God's favor actually is. Maybe it's only hearing God say, well done, good and faithful servant, when we finally get to see him face to face. Now, if you're not a believer, that's going to sound like a really sucky reward, quite honestly. Um, But think about it. Is there anything better than the all-powerful, all-loving creator of the universe looking down on you and saying, well done? This life is a blip. It doesn't feel like a blip. I mean, this is all we know. It feels like eternity. I mean, boiling water. It feels like eternity, right? But this life, this life is a blip. And imagine, not for a day, not for a month or a year or a hundred years or a thousand years or a million years, but imagine for all eternity, Jesus looking down on you and saying, well done. That's awesome. I mean, that that's awesome. It is possible that God's favor implies something more temporal. Um, if, you, if you look at the story of Job, after Job went through a lot of suffering, Job got physical stuff after that. So it's possible at times that's what it may mean, but it certainly isn't assured. And if you're watching guys on television that say, if you suffer, God's going to give you a car and a TV and a spouse and everything you want, they're not reading their Bible because there's nothing that says that. All right, so I looked at what Peter's saying. I think this is a good time to look at what Peter's not saying. So one huge difference between us and slaves in Roman times is that we don't have to stay in a terrible job. We don't have to remain in an unhealthy friendship. Now certainly, I think in our church, and so I'm going to say like in this Raleigh er economic area, I'm fairly certain nobody has to work where you're working you could quit and find another job. Now, I'm not saying you you would make as much money necessarily. It might not provide the same amount of flexibility. It might not provide the same amount of job satisfaction. But the work is there, and I think we can provide for our families. It's okay to move on. Peter's not saying where you, you have to stay where you are, you have to suffer hardship forever. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul even says that slaves should take there an opportunity to be free if it's possible for them to do so. So what you should hear today is, how do I respond in the moment when I'm suffering unjustly? It also isn't a call to submit and obey when you're being told to do something that is counter to the faith. 
Now, Jeff talked about this a lot when he was talking about governmental authority. You should go back and listen to that sermon from a few weeks ago because it was fantastic. And lastly, it doesn't mean you're not allowed to give feedback. So you can tell a terrible boss that's not a great idea. Um, But what it does do is it dictates the kind of feedback you can give. You can never be vindictive, period. Um, And more importantly, it kind of dictates how you would give feedback. So what I want to do, I'm going to give you a few real-world examples here that come to mind about responding well or not. Um, About two years or so after graduating from college, I'd had my first job. I was working in RTP. My manager was based out of Boston. He shows up one day. Um, sits in my office says, hey, Ken, um, we've been reevaluating your work, and we've decided that uh, we want to move all your work to Boston. So um, what I'd really like you to do is hop on a plane in like two days because it's really, really important work. It's critical. Our, we, our company can't function without it, but we want you to teach other people how to do it. So come to Boston, teach us how to do it, and then what we really want is for you to move to Seattle. And I know we've never talked about this. You may not want I don't know. But we want you to move to Seattle and work for us on site there. So work for our company, but work in, at Microsoft um, in Seattle. But if that doesn't work out for you, you know, if that's not what you want, take two weeks, see if you can find something else to do here. And, um, you know, otherwise, it's, it's been great. Thanks. Uh, we appreciate all you've done. Uh, I am not particularly proud of my response. Um, I stood up. I called him a word I will not repeat in church, and I left. I, I actually left the meeting. I went for a walk for like an hour and a half. I didn't say goodbye. I didn't tell him what I was doing. I just walked up and left the room. I came back about an hour and a half later. He said he was still in his little temporary office. He said, you're really mad, aren't you? <laughs> Genius. Uh, yes. Um, so it all worked out okay for me uh, career-wise there. But I'm fairly certain, and I don't know for sure, but I'm fairly certain that happened to me because I'd been raising some ethical questions about some stuff that we were doing. And I think it was a way about getting me out of the way. So, did I respond right? <laughs> no. Did it happen because of trying to be righteous? Potentially. I'd skip forward or so. So, 14 years or so later. Um, once again, I'm still at the same company. I still have a manager in Boston, so that may be the primary lesson here. Don't have managers in Boston. Monday morning, I come to work. My manager is sitting in my office waiting on me, which is never a good thing. It says, we need to talk. Um, your role has been eliminated. The security guy outside the door will escort you off the building. Um, this came after excellent performance reviews. I'd never heard anything bad. Um, I'd spent the last maybe 16 hours that weekend in the office working on performance appraisals for my team because I wanted to give them really good feedback. Um, I was hurt. I was ticked. I didn't understand it. Um, I was probably just as angry as I was before. Uh, This time, I asked him and said, do I have to leave right now? Um, There's so much that you need to know about my team and about what's going on. I'd really like to leave this in a good place. And so I convinced him to stay. He wouldn't leave me unattended. So he stayed with me for like three and a half hours. And I I gave him all my performance appraisals. I put everything in the right place. I talked him through my team, my team dynamics, the customer support issues we were working on. I did everything I could to leave it in in a great spot. And then I packed up my office, and I was escorted by security out of the building, never to return. Um, Was I treated harshly? Possibly. Was it because of right actions and righteousness on my hand? Eh, not necessarily. Was my response good? Yes. So now we've got kind of the two halves of it, but we don't necessarily have the acting right and responding right. So third example. This is a true story. 
um, I'm going to change the names to protect the innocent or the guilty either way. Um, guy named Tom. So um, Tom was working for a company where everybody that he was working with was a, a group of males, uh, including his boss. Every night they would go out and go partying. They would drink. They would try to pick up women. And they, were, they wanted him. They would like, hey, come with us. But Tom was happily married, and he went home to his wife. And he told them, listen, I, I can't do that. Right? I'm happily married. Um, I love my wife. I love my God. I'm not going to do that. Everything I know says that he acted in these situations well. His manager and the whole team treated him horribly. So as an example, his manager would show up, and so this happened at least twice, and would say, hey, man, um, times are tough. I'm going to have to let you go. He'd be like, what? He goes, nah, just kidding with you. I can't let you go. You're too valuable for that. The straw that broke the camel's back for him is his manager showed up one day with paperwork. This is a true story. Showed up with paperwork in hand and said, you know all those times I've messed with you and said I had to lay you off? This time it's real. Um, and I need you to pack up your office and leave. He let him pack up his office, start to exit the building when he said, dude, I can't let you go. I'm just messing with you. Like, you're way too valuable. That's a horrible boss, just a, a horrible boss. As far as I know, Tom in every way acted with respect. He was never vindictive. He was never retributive. Um, and he was treated the way he was treated because he loved his God and he loved his wife and he acted like in accordance with that. I think those are the kind of situations in part that this is calling us to. Other examples of bad bosses, being told to work late or early yet again, being told to do something exactly this way when you know that that way is better, being forced to be the bearer of bad information just because your manager is a wimp and doesn't want to do it himself, um, losing your favorite red stapler because your boss is petty. <laughs> I thought there'd be two people who would get that. That was great. Um, there's, just, there's, there's all sorts of kinds of terrible bosses. The point here, like I tell my kids, is that no one decides how you get to reply other than you. And we are called to respond in love, to submit to those bosses and obey, even in cruddy situations like that. In other words, we are called to a radical countercultural response to those that treat us wrongly. There is nothing in society that is going to tell you to act like this. What we're told is, stand up for yourself, stand up for your rights in every place, in every way. But we are called to a radical countercultural response to those that treat us wrongly. How can anybody obey and respond well like this? Where do we get the motivation? Where do we get the power to do that? Well, Peter tells us in the very next bit. He says... For to this you were called. So let me stop there for just a second. This, this suffering and this response is a fundamental part of what it means to follow Jesus. For to this you were called. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example to, for you to follow in his steps. Now that word example, that's a really cool word. The picture of this word example in Greek 
is that when kids would learn how to do their letters, they would have a sheet with really dark letters on it, and then they would have a, like a tracing sheet you would put on top. And so what the kids would do is they'd put the tracing sheet on top, and then they would draw over the original letters to teach their body how to do what was right. And he's saying, lay Jesus' life down and trace your life down on top of it. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was maligned, he did not answer back. When he suffered, he, th he threatened no retaliation. But he committed himself to God, who judges justly. Now, just kind of as an aside, if that's the phrasing of that all sounds really, really familiar, and some of it's going to sound familiar in the next passage, that's because he's quoting Isaiah 53 and paraphrasing Isaiah 53. As a home group, you all should, like, get Isaiah 53 and take this and compare them. It's really cool. But how can anybody obey this? Firstly, by looking to the example of Jesus. If there was anybody ever that didn't deserve to suffer, it was Jesus. And yet, he was betrayed, he was mocked, he was mentally, he was physically tortured, and he was eventually executed. He never retaliated. Now, if Jesus is just a story, this is not that big a deal, frankly, because we have lots of heroes that do really cool stuff and hold up really well, right? But if this is true history, as I believe it is, if Jesus is indeed God-made flesh, this is huge. Colossians tells us that all things, whether visible or invisible, thrones or dominions, whether principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. To imagine that the God that made you and the sunset, jellyfish, right, allowed himself to experience this kind of suffering, it blows my mind. There was a commentary by a guy named John Phillips that I read who pointed out that just one angel killed all the firstborn in Egypt. Just one angel destroyed the army of Sennacherib in the Old Testament. Jesus said he could call 12 legions of angels to his defense. There's 6,000 people in a Roman legion. Jesus said he could call 72,000 angels in his defense. Can you imagine what 72,000 angels would have done or could have done? But he didn't. Why not? He was following his own teaching. It was Jesus that said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the evildoer. Whoever strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek to him as well. If someone wants to sue you and to take your tunic, give him your coat also. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you. Do not reject the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. I've heard it said, um, so this, is, this will apply to women too, but I, I've heard it said that men are often turned off by Christianity because they think it's a religion for wimps. Like all this loving others and being compassionate and praying, like it's just, you know, not for them. If that's you, you don't get it. You just don't get it. To resist responding to evil with yet more evil takes incredible strength. Men, this is a huge part of what it means to be a man, to have the strength to pray for your enemies, even when they're persecuting you, 
to submit to them even when you have the strength not to. And to do this, not just for some reason, but because you are following in the footsteps of Jesus who suffered on your behalf. So how do you do that? Well, we know what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to follow the example of Jesus, but how? How can you do that? Well, he tells us again. He says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we may cease from sinning and live for righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. Jesus isn't just our example. He's also the source of the power for a follower of Jesus to live that out. Elsewhere, it says that it's Christ working in us that gives us that power. By his life, by his death, by his resurrection, he transforms the people who follow him. Here, it says, cease from sinning and live for righteousness. It says we're healed. Now, normally, biblical authors talk about being raised from death to life. You can add that in because it's, it's perfectly perfectly valid here. But part of the point is we're not just raised from death to life the way we were. We're raised from death to life, and we are healed spiritually so that you can have the strength to live and follow his example. That's why back at the beginning I said only Jesus' followers have the power to follow his example because this is so counter to everything around us. It has to be Christ living in us and living through us to live out this way. And that kind of leads me to the, the last major point here. Our suffering allows Jesus or helps Jesus to be known. Dan talked about this a little a few weeks ago, referencing 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. When we suffer, and again, not suffering because you're a jerk, because you probably deserve to suffer if you're a jerk, right? This is saying if you suffer because you're doing right, you're following in the footsteps of Jesus, and you're suffering, it gives you an opportunity to share with others why we act the way we do. It opens a door to share the suffering of Jesus and to say, you know, to like let them see Jesus suffered on my behalf. Like my suffering's nothing. Consider what he did. It gives us a chance to explain his love for us. And it gives us a chance to talk about how God is eventually going to deliver justice in its truest form and why we don't have to do that right now in the moment. Remember, this, this is a blip, right? All of it is his story. It's not our story. And an opportunity to share his story is amazing. So what now? What do you, what do, you do with this? If it's convicting to you at all about your, the way that you act and your behavior, confess it to Jesus, pray for the strength to change, make a choice to do better in the next situation. Let Jesus work through you there. Even, and this would be weird, even consider confessing to your boss or whoever this other person is in authority is that you haven't been living in a way that reflects your Savior. Now, if you do that, uh, you, might <laughs> you might talk to Dan Fitzgerald or Weston McManus first because they do weird and awkward things like that, and they might have suggestions on how to do it and do it well. Um, if you're in a situation where this is happening um, and you, where abuse is happening and you can't get out, um, tell somebody and get help. Talk about this topic in home groups. 
See how you can strengthen and encourage one another. It, it may not for you, but I struggled with this sermon a lot this week because there's so many potential situations that came to mind about what am I supposed to do here? What am I supposed to do there? How do you deal with that? Um, talk about them together as a home group. Consult scripture, all of scripture together. Uh, pray for insight together. And it might be that this is convicting to you, not because of work necessarily, but because it's helped you to see Jesus in a new light and you want to know more. And if that's the case, um, find me, find one of the elders when they're back, find a member of staff, uh, find somebody who looks like they know what they're doing um, or just somebody that you know and like confess it. Um, Let them know, kind of talk through it and see how you can move forward from there. My prayer for all of us really is that we'll be inspired by the example of Jesus, but way way more than that. That we will realize just how great his sacrifice for us was to bring us close to him and that we will turn more towards him every day. All right, so um, I think as the band comes back up, I want to quickly explain um, about uh, communion. So as the, as the band plays today, um, you ha- everybody should have a communion cup by you. We take communion... Um, as a church, as a way of remembering what Christ has done on our behalf. And so at, as the music plays at whatever leisure you want to, feel free to take communion. Um, there's both uh, a cracker and juice. Uh, the cracker represents Jesus' body that was broken for us. The juice is Jesus' blood that was shed for us. Every time that we take communion together, we are remembering who he is and what he's done for us. So take this in remembrance of him. Would you pray with me? Father God, you are great and awesome and mighty. You are good and you are sovereign. And there are situations um, that we get into that we, that are hard. And I thank you, God, that these aren't unknown to you. I thank you for the opportunity in every one of those situations to make Uh, you known in our lives and in the lives of those around us. I pray, God, that you would open our eyes to see you, to know you, and to desire you, uh, and to help you be known throughout the world. You are our Savior, and we love you. Teach us to love you more. In the name of Jesus.